Welcome back to the swamp my friends and welcome if you're new. Today we're going to be sharing some downright strange and creepy unexplained paranormal happenings that were sent in by viewers just like you. As always if you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode be sure to submit your story at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I would love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp. Now. Be sure to hit that like button as it helps me out a ton, subscribe if you're new, and turn on notifications so you don't miss a new episode, and get ready for these creepy and downright strange unexplained horror stories that'll freak you out tonight. My Terrifying Demon Encounter by Ben K. I am 22 years old now. But when this happened, I was 17 years old. I had an extremely terrifying experience that has stayed with me my entire life. I was always getting in trouble when I was a teenager. I was kicked out of two high schools, I ran away multiple times, and made life hard for my parents and myself. When this went down, it was the summer, and I was in that I'll do whatever I want mode. One day, my parents called and told me that I had to come home. I didn't want to, so I said, no way, I want to hang out with my friends. My parents responded, well, you can either come home or you can find some place else to live. So I did. I asked my friend if I could get a job and live with her in their apartment for a while. She wanted some help with the rent anyway, so she said it was okay. Her apartment, if you could call it that, was the upstairs of a 150-year-old home split into four apartments. The building is around 150 years old and has a sign out front from the original owners. It has their names and all that cool stuff on it. I only noticed the sign after I left, though. The apartment was spread out, and at the very back of it was the smallest of three bedrooms. I made that my room because it was the most private and out of the way. After a while, it turned into the smoke room. The first couple of weeks were enjoyable staying there and we threw a couple of parties. But after a couple of weeks of staying there, I remember walking home from work one night and my friend would be gone. I would go in the front door, walk up the wooden stairs to our door, and when I got to the door, the hair always stood up on the back of my neck because I felt like something on the stairs was watching me and didn't want me to be there. Of course, I had to go into my apartment though, regardless of that feeling. I had nowhere else to go, and nothing had happened to me to make me necessarily scared at this point. So, I would go in, get food, and just sit on the couch with my back to the wall until my roommate got home. One night, I mentioned how I was getting creeped out in the apartment and she said, Oh yeah, I'm pretty sure it's haunted. She told me that she would often wake up watching TV in the middle of the night, and her miniature dog would just jump off the couch and run into my room. She said the room would be pitch dark, but he would just stand there barking at the ceiling. However, she never saw anything. That was pretty creepy to hear, considering it was my room, so I slept on the couch that night. I fell asleep with her little dog curled up next to me. In the morning, an extremely frightening thing happened to me. I remember waking up to what I thought was a man or something with a man's voice laughing very loudly and taunting me in my ear. I was immediately struck with terror and confusion. 
I looked into my roommate's bedroom and saw her sleeping on her bed while this was going on. I tried yelling for her but was frozen, and no words came out. I had an overwhelming feeling like all of my energy was just being sucked out of me. On top of what was already happening, the entire house started shaking for a minute. I remember thinking, it's lights out. I know it's the morning, but I can't believe this is happening right now. I think that this attack only lasted for about two minutes maximum, and then whatever it was seemed to be sucked right out of the window. It's not that I saw it being sucked out of the window, but I just felt it leave that way. My voice returned after another minute, and I called for my roommate. When she woke up, she said that she had not heard or felt anything. I couldn't believe what had just happened, and I was way too petrified to continue living there. I told a couple of people about my experience, and I was so disturbed that I researched some of the home's history at the library. I honestly did not encounter anything too crazy, but I do believe that whatever attacked me may be a spirit that was unrestful. Or maybe, it's some sort of demonic attack. The idea scares me to death, but I'm pretty sure at this point it was something demonic. The Grim Reaper by Anonymous This happened somewhere around seven or eight years ago. I can't recall the exact amount of time that has passed. I was working on this nursing home when I was still in Baltimore, Maryland. I was a new nurse stationed at this skilled unit they called the vent unit. Now, the patients or residents that stay here look like they are in critical condition with their ventilators attached to their trachea and peg tubes attached to their feeding pumps. Still, they are stable enough to be placed on our unit. Our unit is like a crossroads. I don't know how to describe it, but I'll try. The nurse's station is like the middle and shaped like a circular area where you can see the north, south, east, and west hallways leading to the other units. The north hallway has a dead end that leads to a wall at the far end and nowhere else to go. That side of the hallway always creeps me out, especially during the night shift, and unfortunately, I always work the night shift. One night, it was past midnight already, and the lights were dimmed, but the north hallway was notably darker than the rest, Probably because it was a dead end. I was doing my chart checks when out of the corner of my eye, I saw a very tall shadow that just glided toward a resident's room. I was facing the east wing at the time because I didn't want to be facing the dark hallway. And still, it didn't spare me from witnessing something unusual. I did my best. I shrugged it off as my imagination, but I could feel something different. Anyway, since I do most of my rounds in a quarter hour interval, I went to the north hallway and checked on the patients. I didn't see anything out of the normal, you know, no tall shadows, nothing unusual. So I went to do my duties and just went on with my night. Fast forward the next day, as I came in from my shift that night and I was getting the report, I was surprised that the endorsing nurse told me that the patient in that room had passed away that morning. I immediately recalled the tall shadowy figure I saw out of the corner of my eye that went through that side of the hallway into the rooms at the far end. I wasn't particularly sure which room, but I knew it was near the resident who had passed away. 
Again, I did my best to pass it off as a coincidence. A few months later, something happened that scared the absolute crap out of me while working there. I was passing out meds sometime past midnight for some scheduled meds on my patients. I was again in the north hallway, and it was pretty dim. Everything was quiet except for some occasional dings and alarms of some vents, but nothing unusual. It was dark as I entered this room since the lights were off, but dim lights were in the hallway behind me. Now the rooms have these expansive windows that are usually covered at night by curtains or blinds, but in this particular room it was wide open. I can't see what's outside since it's pitch black, but the window serves as a mirror since I can see my reflection in the reflection of the hallway behind me when I enter the room. This gives me the creeps until today and I remember when I entered the room like it just happened to me. I felt like something was behind me. You know that feeling you get when you are being watched and you feel the hairs on the back of your neck standing up with that prickly sensation all over your body as your heart starts to rise and pound faster? That's exactly what I felt. And what made it worse is when I was trying to search for the room's light switch. I roamed my eyes all over the room while feeling my hand on the wall for the switch. When my eyes landed on the reflection of the window where I saw a tall, shadowy figure standing just behind me. My heart skipped a beat, and as soon as I felt the switch I turned it on, and the figure was gone from the reflection on the window. I was so freaked out that I never said a word that shift, and just did the rest of my work to occupy my mind. Coworkers asked me to this day why I was so abrupt to leave that day, and honestly, I don't know how to explain it. It's one of those unforgettable moments that I will forever live with. A Dark Veil by Blossoms My friend's uncle passed away a few weeks ago. I returned to Brazil for his funeral since he was one of the helpers who introduced me to my grandmother's tribe. Not a person from the tribe per se, but something like a tour guide. If it were not for him, I would never have met the same tribe my grandmother was in. For people who do not understand, my grandmother is from a native tribe in Brazil called Taparapa. They are very mysterious and not too open-minded, which means they rarely communicate with outsiders. My friend's uncle was a middle person who allowed me to contact those people. I do not think I became a friend to the tribe, but some elders still remembered my grandmother. During the funeral of my friend's uncle, in the air of sadness, I looked into the casket to say my final goodbye. I could not look into his face directly because I was afraid I would burst out crying. As I looked up and reached his face, I thought I saw a black veil over it. I wondered if anybody else would hide the dead man's face with a black veil. I didn't think that was normal. When I looked again from the corner of my eye, I saw no veil. I whispered to my sister, Did you see the veil on his face? My sister said no, and then shushed me. Honestly, I know I saw something strange. It was probably just maybe something tragic, but I did hear on my way out somebody whispering about a black veil lingering over the body. Were we seeing maybe a grim reaper? Were we seeing some sort of demon? Or maybe was this just lingering energy from my friend's uncle? A place we were not supposed to find. By Anonymous.
This happened in 2013 or 2014, my junior year of high school. I was visiting my girlfriend and her family in Washington, in the Centralia area. We drove up to the BLM Rose to do some grilling and shooting. It was spring break, so it was a very gray and very rainy time. While the adults were setting up the grills, my girlfriend and I got into an ATV and went back on the road we came in to do some exploring. We went around a sharp curve in the road, and the wind and rain suddenly stopped. The sky went from gray to gold, and there was a clearing that went from the side of the road to the woods roughly 200 feet away. The light in the sky was not coming from where the sun was at the time, and the space between the trees was much darker than it had been before. We both could tell something was not quite right and was definitely off. I took off my helmet so I could hear better, and there was a sort of whistling slash whooping sound coming from a very specific spot in the trees. Now, I couldn't see much of anything, but I knew something could see me, and I could feel that it was not happy that we were there. We turned around and noped the heck out of there as fast as we could. It was kind of like the scene from that movie in Princess Mononoke, where you see the forest spirit for the first time, except very angry. The cherry on top of all this is that we had been gone for about 30 minutes when we got back, but according to my girlfriend's family, we were gone for three hours. I know there's something strange in the woods, but I don't know what this was, and it's been burned in my brain for a decade. Found and Lost by Theo Plesha I don't have a lot of time to get this all typed up and out there. I barely escaped, and they're looking for me. I hope this gets out. If you see it, make sure it goes viral so people know what's really happening. I was the foreman working on Thorn Grove, the new elementary school site. I'm going to try to explain this in a way that makes the most sense because it barely makes any sense to me. We were doing shift change and headcounts as the graveyard crew left and the morning crew came on. Shane, the night shift supervisor, was having the same problem I was. Some folks weren't showing up when they were supposed to. My problem was less interesting since we got no calls, no shows all the time, but he was having a difficult time locating people on the site. He was blurry-eyed from the night and I was frustrated because time was just getting wasted. Eventually, we got distracted by some commotion on the far end of the site. We started to trot over to where the yelling was coming from. Then Shane rushed up his huge cargo pants and started spilling excuses about trying to settle his daughter down and get her off to school after she lost her beloved stuffed animal. I told him we'd talk about it as my trot became a full-on dash as a cluster of five night shift guys were hauling over metallic containers, roughly the size of a 30-quart chest cooler. For all I knew, it was the freaking Ark of the Covenant. Shane and I called for an order while the workers tried to explain what they had found. They said they hit it with their backhoe bucket shuffle. I didn't believe them because the object, though dirty, looked completely intact and the tines on the bucket would have certainly pierced the strongest metal cooler, unless of course it was solid titanium, which it couldn't be since only two men were able to haul it off well over 50 yards seemingly without issue. While I tried to settle them down, 
The backhoe operator tossed down two dirt-encrusted prongs of metal. I instantly recognized them as the metal tines of the backhoe bucket. This object now had my complete attention. They brushed away the dirt on all sides, and although it was silvery like metal, it had more of like a graphite dullness and shapelessness to it. The sides bore no sides of the impact from the shovel, and no markings of any other kind. Construction gloves wiped the top clear in sections. The top part read, Thorn Grove Elementary School Discovery Expansion 2052. One of the workers immediately gasped and said it was a time capsule not to be opened until 2052. Another worker pointed out that it was possibly for a new school they were building. And then Shane chimed in that it was probably an expansion that wasn't in the plans quite yet. One of the workers pointed out the lack of seam or any kind of latch to open this thing. He flipped over the impervious metallic crate. It seemingly moved with ease. He brushed off the bottom which read, Thorn Grove Elementary School Discovery Expansion 2052. Do not open until 2102. One of the workers who stood with his arms crossed over his chest and his wrap-around sunglasses reflecting the morning sun shook his head, saying it had to be a prank. It would have been one hell of an expensive prank, though. It would have been made out of some sort of experimental graphene material to do what it did to the backhoe and remain intact. Either it was an elaborate prank or we're looking at a time capsule, but one from the future. Shane argued his men should open it, but as I already mentioned, the box was solid all the way around, with only markings on the top and bottom. That's when the worker who came in late, Peter Red, took out his phone and started to take pictures. As he circled the box and the other men crowded around, it must have triggered the auto flash on his phone's camera and something about the flash triggered the box. The top of the box seemed to slither off in quarters onto the four corners, revealing a soap bubble-like membrane separating the contents from the open air. The best analogy I could make about the technology and how the capsule opened was that it was unsealed and globed away, like the liquid metal Terminator from Terminator 2. The cooler was filled with all kinds of strange objects. There was something that looked like a Rubik's Cube married to some sort of disc ball roughly two inches cubed. There was a collection of four cylinders made of material that seemed to be translucent. It's hard to really explain, you know? Each of these things were labeled H2O and ATMOS. I can only guess they were air and water samples from the future. There was a device that vaguely looked like headphones but looked narrower. Like it might grip onto someone's neck. I could make out the snowflake symbol on the two pads and I speculated that maybe it was some kind of personal air conditioner. There was a circular item that bore a passing resemblance to a pacifier, but the mouthpiece was hollow, with two short hoses that separated out into a lima bean shaped pad that looked like a combination of an earbud or a foam ear protector. Thoughtlessly, one of the workers reached through the membrane and started to grab the various objects out. One by one, the unusual devices were grabbed or spilled out of the membrane onto the ground and mauled by the workers until the capsule was empty. Then Shane grabbed the box and seemed to lead a mass exodus off the property. We, we didn't even make it halfway through the parking lot. Some sort of armed forces in black and silver uniforms swamped us. They were clad in some sort of armor, motorcycle-like helmets and reflective visors and respirators. 
One of them had a red stripe on his chest, and I instantly recognized him as an officer because his head was twisting back and forth. I couldn't hear them communicating, and I assumed somehow they had seal communication links between them. The officer's helmet, visor, and respiratory gear turned mostly transparent. His eyes were locked with mine and he started to bark some sort of command. He told us to remain calm and still, that he was declaring a possible biohazardous incident and we couldn't leave until we were cleared. For men who fought their way into diners during COVID lockdowns and, and thought they won the lottery with tech from the future, this didn't sit well. They started shoving and darting away for a different way out. The officer shouted a command, Have it your way, Narcomitentum. Two of his troopers raised and fired a grenade launcher into the air. The shell split into multiple ping-pong-sized ball spheres that popped like fireworks, dousing us with a white powder that knocked us out cold. All of the crew, Shane, Peter, the five others, and I woke up shivering and in pain in an orange tent with bright lights overhead and the sound of rushing air. The entrance of the tent was guarded by two heavily armed guards, we were separated from them by a thin inner section of the tent with a transparent airlock liner that reached most of the way around the tent. There were a series of cameras with a sort of reddish spotlight on them. They were periodically scanning over us and relaying medical information like heart rate and O2 levels to a series of monitors on the other side of the airlock. A voice came over a non-existent loudspeaker. It asked us to slowly regain our feet and to take the pills on the table in the middle of the tent if we were feeling anxious or achy. It explained that we were subjected to a fentanyl-based knockout agent similar to what the Russians used in the Moscow theater siege, and Narcan was used to revive us, but the whole experience could result in uncomfortable side effects which the pills could relieve. All of us started to shout to someone to tell us what was going on. The voice said the officer in command would be with us shortly. Indeed, the officer stood in the monitoring section of the tent with his face revealed to us. Something about the material the tent was made of revealed that the face he was displaying was of a false image, which made sense to me because this was some sort of ultra-secret operation. But the fact that no one was actually showing their faces made me feel better about my chances of surviving. In heist movies, you were dead if you showed your face, or whoever saw it was dead. There was no in-between. The officer explained that we had discovered an anti-chrono artifact, basically an object for reasons not explained to us that travels backwards in time. The nature of the artifact and its time period now breached by us had biological considerations. Future strains of the flu, future strains of COVID, future strains of the common cold, or even future novel viruses altogether we may not have even discovered. They were required by code to hold us until any pathogens could be identified and determined if they were infected. Under no circumstances could we leave until that process was complete, because the future of humanity was at stake, allegedly. He assured us that the tent was inescapable and he would not risk letting us go after our first reaction. He said the tent was constructed around us with virtually no contact between us and his men. They told us to stay put, and hopefully we'd make it out alive. We waited for hours. It was probably around noon when the officer came back and addressed me, me specifically, by name. He insisted he would speak to me. The officer told me something that I still don't fully understand. He said the time capsule was an anti-chrono artifact and was shielding regular chrono effects essentially carrying them back in time, so long as they remained within the capsule. 
The capsule's exterior was set to .000001 standard units, which he relayed to me as it would, or in this case should, have only intersected with our perceivable present for one hour. He sighed when he said that none of this should have happened, and none of this would have happened if my men had dug in that area about one minute before, or about 60 minutes after shift change. The capsule would have been in our future by 60 minutes still, or our past by the smallest unit of time. Either way, it would not have been there at the time we were digging. He continued by saying that something had gone wrong because the time capsule had not disappeared from our present. He said it was stuck, and it was because the time capsule was missing something. Something his men didn't manage to collect while we were on the ground and before the isolation tent went up. He reiterated that, as of now, we had some time. He believed the capsule was stable in our time for at least another hour, but after that he said that something bad was going to happen. He said something like Hitler could win World War II, I could never be born, or the Big Bang Theory might not happen at all. Everything could potentially disappear because something, in that case, needed to keep going back in time. He told me he believed I could figure out and talk to whoever was holding something and maybe get them to surrender it. In the meantime, the officer told me he was running temporal correlations to the incident facets and there was no guarantee they would produce results in the time allotted. He suggested I start asking people with connections to the area, specifically this field before it became the construction site for the school. The alternative was that he'd kill us all and risk contaminating himself to find the object. He said as far as the world, the public, and our families outside of the construction site were concerned, they were informed that there was a hazmat accident on site and that the area was off limits with unknown casualties. Yet he suggested I take any action I deemed necessary to keep it that way. As the officer left, I turned around to see my employees, my family, huddled on the other side of the tent. They lifted their heads and stared me down with suspicion. I respected them. I had been to some of their homes and even met most of their families. We played softball together and spent at least one solid 4th of July getting drunk together. I went to Peter's first child's funeral and was sort of close with his surviving daughter, Maggie. It occurred to me, though, that Peter was a newcomer to the area and had moved here for the project. My suspicions fell on Shane, who had lived here his whole life, but as I thought about it then, I wasn't sure how being local mattered. I gave everyone the cliff notes about what the officer had told me. I omitted certain details, chief among them was the alternative. I was met by loudness, mostly things I would have said. Who are these guys, really? Who does something like this? How can you even travel back to the past? The experts say a lot of things, etc. I let them exhaust themselves a bit before I straight asked them if anyone kept something they shouldn't have from the box. I reiterated the disease aspect that if they'd surrendered it now, we could all probably get out of here. I turned to Shane. He told me not to look at him. I told him I had reason to believe he had it. Whatever it was, he swore he only grabbed the capsule itself, and by the time he did, it was empty. It was then that one of the workers, Mac, stepped up and yelled that if they wanted it so bad, they should come in and take it. He got applause from two others, including Peter. I told him this wasn't about that. That didn't stop Mac and Peter from taking swings at me. Shane and the other three then came and pushed them down in a way. When the scuffle was said and done, there was a beanie baby-like toy on the floor. It was in the shape of a dachshund. I picked it up and Peter immediately came over to me and tried to look surprised. 
He said it was his daughter's stuffed animal that she lost, and he must have had it in his cargo pants the whole time. He tried to play it off like he found the toy she lost. I was about to hand it back to him when the stomach opened up and revealed a pouch. Beaming out of the pouch, in the eyes was a bright light and a message that read, Dad, I finally found it. I wish every single day I made a bigger fit that morning. Love you, Dad. Maggie. I held it for a second and tried to play it off like I hadn't seen the message. Something clicked in my mind, though. Something like when you know you have something horribly gone wrong, like, or if you have, like, beat somebody in poker really bad, but you don't want to show your excitement. I was about to ask Peter if he had been up here before, but I remembered when I brought him on. He said he used to bring his kids to the park nearby where the school was being built, and he was excited to move his family here and have a brand new school for them. Shortly afterwards, his son died. I realized that if I kept going back in time, there was a chance someone in the past might have encountered it and taken something, something like a stuffed dachshund with an eyeball hologram tech out of it, and maybe kept it. Why didn't it destroy the universe then? I wasn't so sure, but because of that, and I think that's entirely what happened, if it wasn't returned now, it would destroy the universe I was currently in because it would never make it back. It would still be here. I gripped the stuffed animal tightly and tossed it into the mini airlock and sealed it. The medical tech came by with a capsule and made the transfer and carried it out, presumably to be reburied and disappeared from our present and our future. I was bracing myself for Peter to come after me taking his daughter's toy, but instead, I saw Peter break down in tears as he slid down to the end of the tent, sobbing. Then it hit me. Dad, I finally found it. I wish I made a bigger fit that morning. Love, Maggie. In the future, Maggie would be affiliated in some way with the school's expansion product and the time capsule. The toy she recovered from the park as a younger child was finally made in the future, and she put that message into the capsule. But it was right on time. It couldn't have happened any other way. In under two hours, we were released from the quarantine monitoring tent, except Peter. Officially, the hazmat incident was us encountering a pocket of hydrogen sulfide gas while digging. All of us survived, except for Peter. We were compensated for the incident with the stipulation that we never discussed it. Doubts flooded my mind along with tears. It all started to break down in my head. I was guilty, so I started telling Peter's story, and now they're after me. I hope, if nothing else, people know the story of Peter. Thanks for listening to these creepy and allegedly true unexplained paranormal horror stories that'll freak you out tonight. If you enjoyed these stories, please be sure to hit that like button as it helps me out a ton. The more likes this episode gets, the more YouTube promotes it and that helps the swamp grow its ever-expanding waters. If you're new to the swamp, why not join us? Be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications as I upload brand new videos on all things natural and supernatural multiple times a week. If you're on the go, but don't have YouTube Premium, but still want to download and listen to your favorite Swamp Dweller scary stories no matter where you are, you can download them absolutely free from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you find your favorite podcast online. If you made it all the way to the end, I would love to know what story was your favorite tonight. It helps me pick out better stories in the future, and I love seeing your feedback and reviews. Thank you guys so much for supporting the Swamp the way you do. I couldn't do this on a daily basis without you all. Be sure to join me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, all those other random websites that we're on. 
and I'll see you all soon with another creepy episode.